Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions and, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include why we despise presidents, what's so great about George Orwell, why do we have local school districts, the state of the labor market, how consumer behavior has changed due to COVID, and SPACs. Today is a bona fide variety show. Our first speaker today is Gary Fine, who is a professor of sociology at Northwestern. Gary will be speaking about an article he wrote in 2002 that has increasing relevance. It is, Why Do We Hate the President? His 2002 article focuses on the left's hostility towards Richard Nixon and conservatives' loathing of Bill Clinton. We will learn about the com commonality of this ongoing antagonism of our political leadership. As you can imagine, it is a real challenge to get six new speakers every week. So for this episode of What Happens Next, I'm following the example of Howard Stern, who invites his old buddies back on the show. Our next speaker is Patrick Allett, a professor of history at Emory. You may recall that Patrick spoke twice previously about the London cholera epidemic, as well as teaching a college history course online. Today, Patrick will discuss the relevance of George Orwell, and in particular, Orwell's famous essay on the politics of the English language. Our third speaker is Bill Fischel, who is an emeritus professor of economics and legal studies at Dartmouth. Bill will discuss his book, Making the Grade, which explains why locally organized school districts may be the optimal way to educate our children. Then we welcome back Betsy Stevenson, who is a professor of economics at Michigan and the former chief economist in Obama's Department of Labor. The labor market remains in flux due to COVID, and I want to hear about how we will get Americans back to work after the vaccination program is completed. Our fifth speaker is my good friend and college fraternity brother, Brendan Hoffman. You may recall meeting Brendan in the spring on What Happens Next when he was CEO of Vince, when he discussed changes in clothing purchases due to COVID. Well, Brendan now has a new job. He is now president of Wolverine Worldwide that owns a variety of shoe brands, including Strideright, Keds, Hush Puppies, and Merrill. Brendan will explain which brands are thriving due to COVID and which are struggling due to changes in customer preferences during the lockdown. Our final speaker today is David Costin, who is Chief Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs. David spoke twice before in our program during the volatile March down draft. David will speak about the current SPAC craze, why do investors love this financial innovation, and why is it happening now? All right, that is today's session. I do want to thank our intern, Ted, Teddy Foley, for his work on the show. Teddy is headed uh, to the University of Chicago next semester. If anyone knows of someone who would like to be an intern for What Happens Next to join our intern, Justin Benjamin, please let me know. All right, I'm now going to hand the call off to our first speaker, Northwestern sociologist, Gary Fine. Go ahead, Gary. Soon after the election of 1968, the honored liberal cartoonist Herblock, a longtime critic of Richard Nixon, published a cartoon in the Washington Post. Herblock had previously depicted Nixon with a nasty-looking five o'clock shadow. In his drawing of a barber shop, a sign read, this shop gives to every new president of the United States a free shave. In this image, Herblock suggested that each new president deserves a fresh start. 
Yet some presidents do not receive that free shave. For a few, a significant portion of the population hates them from the day that they are elected, even before. We can think of FDR, Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, and the recent inhabitant of the White House. This loathing is not simply a disagreement on policy. Arguing, belittling, and satirizing are not the same. Indeed, one may well suggest that Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton were more centrist than many in their party and made widely popular decisions. The judgment has an emotional root and can be attached to presidents of either party. Many recognize that emotion today. Not all presidents are hated in this way by their opponents. And we can think of Dwight Eisenhower, Jimmy Carter, or George H.W. Bush as examples. Now in 2002, I wrote an essay attempting to explain why certain presidents were despised, focusing on Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. This talk, while it echoes with current events, is not only relevant to the revulsion that some of you might feel today. This strong, passionate reaction is directed at a person, an accomplished leader that you do not know personally, but only through mediated representations. Scholars refer to this as parasocial interaction. This can be so intense that one may throw objects at a television set or may even refuse to speak the name of the villain, Voldemort, or 45. The attacks can be brutal. Bill Clinton was said to have, quote, the sexual glands of an orangutan. Nixon was said to be intent on seizing dictatorial powers and that he would destroy the world if he could. Said one critic of Nixon, quote, everything anyone has suspected about Richard Nixon has been true with or without evidence echoes of what some believe of Donald Trump. The argument that I made was that despised presidents are hated before they take office. Their character is set for a sizable segment of the electorate. These enemies are looking for reasons to attack, and they often find them. In these cases, surveys suggest that the antagonists are about 20% of the population, as in the case of Nixon and Clinton, the two most hated presidents of the 20th century. Hillary Clinton spoke of a vast right-wing conspiracy against her husband. FDR would have understood. So would Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. It is significant that the first impeachment resolution against Richard Nixon occurred before the Watergate break-in. Talk of impeachment surrounded Bill Clinton before anyone had heard of Monica Lewinsky. Um, and there were many calls to impeach Donald Trump prior to his taking office. The predicate for hatred was present from when Trump rode down the escalator in New York. Scandal is waiting to be uncovered. There is no free shave. Well, why does this matter? Having these opponents, let us call them reputational entrepreneurs, means that never Nixons and never Clintons 
are looking for errors and failures, preparing to transform them into significant issues of public debate. Every mistake becomes a scandal. And it must be admitted that these presidents, Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump, gave their enemies fodder for their hatred. For FDR, the issue of his class betrayal was prominent. For Dick Nixon, it was his role in the Alger Hiss hearings. For Bill Clinton, it was his image as a draft dodging child of the 1960s. And for our recent president, well, take your pick. This did not prevent the president from gaining popularity. After all, Roosevelt, Nixon, and Clinton were reelected, and Donald Trump received nearly 75 million votes. The point is that there were numerous visceral opponents from the outset whose revulsion was so embedded that they were always ready to pounce. Well, we enter 2021 with a new president, one with an Amtrak past, but without much baggage. Will Joe Biden be a despised president? I suspect that he will be protected in some measure in that he lacks an evil backstory, coupled with a set of family tragedies that provide a penumbra of sympathy. Any hatred would have appeared by now. Perhaps we will take an intermission from drama. President Biden will surely be attacked, he will be scorned, and he will be mocked. But will he be hated? I think it is doubtful. But after all, check with me in four years. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. All right, so let's go. We're going to go straight to questions. Um, you're making a prediction about uh, the expected hatred of Biden. Um, in your article, um, you mentioned that there were certain aspects of both Nixon and Clinton that reflected some aspect of a previous generation. And it was that previous generation that caused a problem and they were reflective of that generation. Um, when, can you maybe explain what you meant by that and then um, apply it if you'd like to, to Biden or not? Well, okay. What I was talking about was what I called generational imprinting, which is a concept that sociologists have used in terms of thinking about uh, reputation work. And, you know, in the case of Nixon, his the hatred for Nixon emerged in the late 1940s, in the, the lead up to the McCarthy years. Uh, for Bill Clinton, it was about the concerns of the 1960s, I think we could even make the case in terms of Donald Trump that this has to do with the, the decade of greed of the 1980s when Trump first became a prominent public figure. Uh, for Joe Biden, you know, it is simply the fact that you are from a particular generation doesn't generate hatred. There needs to be a story that is constructed something that connects Biden to that previous generation. Um, and I don't think in his case that there is that kind of emotional power. You know, the uh, oppositional party tries to demonize um, the leader of the uh, opponent of the other party. And one of the aspects that the Republicans have used to demonize 
Biden uh, is reflective of his um, his aging and his um, you know I'll call it ongoing dementia. If someone has created an image of someone uh, who is uh, aging and forgetting and, and uh, getting dementia, is that something that you can't hate? Is that just sort of like a um, an older uncle who's, you know, you maybe get a little bit embarrassed about They Even the Democrats are saying, oh, there goes Joe type of thing. But is that description uh, opposite to something, you, someone or something you can hate? Right. Uh- you know, Larry, you used the word demonize, and that's yeah. you know that, that's a very appropriate word in many of these cases that they that the figure becomes demonic, and I'm not sure that simply because one is becoming uh, elderly, you know, it was certainly said of Ronald Reagan that he was entering Alzheimer's uh, Alzheimer's territory before it was clear that he was. The same was said of uh, George W. Bush, that Bush, it was claimed, was uh, people saw in his uh, lack of articulateness uh, early onset Alzheimer's. You know, these are claims that didn't seem to be the case. Uh, it is certainly true when you're dealing with presidents who are in their 70s, and, and in Biden's case, perhaps into his 80s, that, uh, you know, this kind of cognitive decline can happen, but it is not likely to build that same kind of demonization that you saw with Nixon or with Clinton or with Trump. And why do you think um, the opposition uh, in, goes down the demonization route? Um, why is this best for their interests? Um, I think, is it, first of all, is it a rational decision or is it irrational? I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, uh-huh. There was a sense that when the Republicans decided to impeach Bill Clinton, that they knew at the trial that they would lose and that it w- would potentially create um, a negative political climate and would, ben- would benefit the Democrats. But when you asked Republicans at the time, why are you doing this? They would say, you know what, we can't help ourselves. And I wonder, is demonization a can't-help-yourself process, or does it reflect a a decision that this is probably the best way uh, for us to regain political control? Okay. So I I guess my my first response would be to suggest that this kind of uh, hatred, this revulsion, is not tied to the political party as such, but to a segment of the population, that it wasn't that the Democratic Party despised Nixon, but there was this element of liberals and of Democrats who remembered the McCarthy era and who blamed Nixon for participating. Um, you know, likewise for Clinton, it wasn't that the Republicans, the Republican Party in 1993 despised Clinton, but there were elements in who were Republicans who despised Clinton. And those elements kind of push the party into 
in both cases, in impeachment. And I think that that is probably the case today, that um, I'm not sure that Joe Biden, if he had his choice, would want to have another impeachment trial of Donald Trump at the early weeks of his administration. But that there is such a push by activists in the party that that it can't be helped. I'm not sure if it does the party any any particular good. Um, but I mean, the Nixon impeachment, clearly it provided the opportunity for the Democrats to make large gains in uh, 1974, the congressional election, but it didn't seem to have that effect for uh, the Clinton administration, the Clinton impeachment. What's interesting is you're, you're taking an almost position that the individual as such doesn't matter, um, that Clinton just represents his generation. So would your prediction be that if he was replaced by Gore, that the hate would be the same for Gore as it was for Clinton? And then as, as a, one other point, when Clinton left office and he was no longer uh, the executive, did the hatred quickly dissipate um, or was it so embedded that you couldn't get rid of that? Um, anger and frustration? Well, I think it was fairly embedded. I mean, even with Nixon, you know, there, I mean, there was an essay in, in the Washington Post recently about how, how Nixon reconstructed his statesmanlike role. And there, there's certainly a, a similar argument that could be made for Bill Clinton, at least until the Me Too movement, where he is his his role is being rethought. Um, you know, I doubt that Gore, that there would have been that same hatred for Al Gore because, you know, it's partly the creation of a narrative, creation of a story, um, and that, you know, Nixon had those those things that he did, you know, and there is an obdurate reality to reputations, and Clinton, you know, had his actions in the 1960s, and people would be able to draw upon them in a way that probably would have been less likely for uh, uh, you know, one of Nixon's opponents in 1968 or for Al Gore in, um, in, uh, 2000, in 2000 or 1992. Now, you're in the sociology this, department. This is, this is Bill. Can I, can I ask a question here? Bill Fisher. Sure. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is there anybody who's tried to quantify the amount of hatred by word counts in uh, editorials or car political cartoons, or you, you introduced yeah. a political cartoon? Uh, I, 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 you know, uh -huh. that, well, there have been some I, surveys. I dislike and others I, I think I think are you know okay, uh, but I've, I'm kind of lost at, at how I could how I could figure out who's who's the most hated. Right. Uh, there, there have been surveys, and, and the ones that I find most interesting is when you ask the public before the inauguration, if you had to predict how successful this administration will be, will this be a, a great administration, good, fair, or poor? For Nixon and for Clinton, the proportion is much higher that before they even take office, they don't get the free shave. You know, they get 10 to 20 percent 
who think that their administration will be poor before day one. And that's not true for every president. So that's one way of quantifying it. In terms of, uh, you know, we, we perhaps can quantify now that we have Twitter. You know, so we have much more, uh, you know, Twitter scape, uh, scraping. Um, so we have much more uh, ability to uh, treat what every man, every woman has to say. Uh, newspaper editorials tend to be uh, less dramatic than the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're in the sociology department. Uh, this is a topic that would normally be included in the political science department. Um, what does sociology as a practice uh, and theory bring to this question that is different uh, than you would find in that department? Right. Well, in sociology, there is a tradition of studying collective memory. And as part of that, looking at the construction of reputations. And so that is how I came to this. Uh, you know, there, there are a number of prominent scholars uh, Barry Schwartz, who just recently passed away, who's who's a very prominent sociologist. Oh, I'm studied... so sorry to hear that. He had spoken on our show a few months ago. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just a few weeks ago, he he passed. Uh, you know, and his work on uh, Lincoln and his work on Washington are instrumental or iconic in sociology. In fact, I became interested in this topic through his work. If Barry can study the great presidents, I wanted to study the worst presidents. And so uh, 25 years ago, I wrote an article on how Warren G. Harding became the worst American president. Um, I won't get into that that uh, explanation here, but you know, it's sociologists study political and cultural reputations. Great. All right. I think with that, we're going to head into our second speaker, who is Patrick Allett. Patrick is going to talk about uh, why we should still care about George Orwell. Patrick, fire away. Thanks very much, Larry. George Orwell had the bad luck to become famous only at the very end of his life. His most famous book, 1984, came out in June of 1949, and he died the following January, aged just 46. Since then, his reputation has risen steadily, and people all over the world invoke his name to justify themselves and to criticize their opponents. That's unusual. Most writers, especially writers on controversial issues of politics and economics, draw as much blame as praise. Think of Adam Smith, Karl Marx, and John Maynard Keynes. Each of them has plenty of admirers, but many fierce critics too. By contrast, there are, so far as I know, no outspoken anti-Orwellians. Most people on the political left in the English-speaking world claim Orwell as one of their own. So they should, because Orwell was a democratic socialist who thought capitalism was a dysfunctional system based on exploitation and dedicated to preserving social injustice and inequality. Orwell fought for the Spanish Republic during Spain's civil war in the late 1930s after enlisting in a far-left anarchist militia group. 
during World War II, he wrote that Britain could only win the war if it underwent an internal socialist revolution. But during the Cold War, in the years just after his death, Orwell became almost equally popular on the political right. This was because his two most famous books, Animal Farm and 1984, were the cleverest and most artful denunciations of communism written up to that time. The fact that the Stalinists in Animal Farm are pigs, and that they try to imitate men by walking on two legs instead of four, made them seem ridiculous as well as menacing. During the Cold War, of course, communism was the great enemy, and Animal Farm, a book even middle schoolers could enjoy, simultaneously satirized and condemned it. Even after the Cold War, Orwell remained popular on the right, because his works could be used to criticize big government. People caught in a bureaucratic web, a common enough experience, compare themselves to characters in Orwell's fiction. And people aware of constant electronic surveillance compare their situation to that of Winston Smith in 1984, who knows always that Big Brother is watching you. Conspiracy theorists, who fear what they call the deep state, also evoke the menacing image of Big Brother. There's a lot more to 1984 than just the anti-communism. It's also a book about standing up for the truth and resisting peer pressure. Winston Smith, the central character, tries to do just that. After his arrest, his interrogator, O'Brien, tells him that 2 plus 2 can make 5 if the regime says so. Smith realizes that he can only preserve his dignity and his humanity if he continues to believe that two and two make four, and only four. And it's a book about emotional honesty, about refusing to believe something or to love something out of fear or expediency. The disheartening end comes when Winston Smith can no longer hold out against the barrage of falsehood and propaganda and is forced to admit to himself that he loves Big Brother. The book ends, therefore, in failure, but readers honor Winston for struggling as long as he did to uphold the simple truth, because the ability of any citizen to think clearly threatened the regime's omnipotence. George Orwell didn't go to college, and one of the pleasures of reading his work is his constant denigration of professional intellectuals. He thought of them as bloodless, cold and shallow, willing to rely on theory instead of actual experience. His most severe scorn was reserved for British intellectuals who joined the Communist Party and defended Stalin's show trials. Men like that, he knew, were going to give socialism a bad name. By contrast, he had faith in the common decency and basic good sense of ordinary people. He wrote affectionate portraits of men and women who did hard jobs like the coal-blackened miners in his Depression-era book, The Road to Wigan Pier. In one of his most memorable and paradoxical phrases, he called coal the filthy heart of civilization. Among the first American critics to realize Orwell's merits was Lionel Trilling, who taught English literature at Columbia University in the 1940s and 50s. In an introduction to one of Orwell's books, Trilling wrote, that many of the great writers of the early 20th century, like George Bernard Shaw, T.S. Eliot, W.B. Yeats, and D.H. Lawrence, were geniuses whose work was so impressive that aspiring young writers often found it a bit discouraging. Trilling went on, 
if we ask what Orwell stands for, the answer is the virtue of not being a genius, of fronting the world with nothing more than one's simple, direct, undeceived intelligence, and a respect for the powers one does have and the work one undertakes to do. I think that's absolutely right, and it's partly why Orwell is as enjoyable and informative now as he was when his books and essays were fresh off the press. Thanks very much. Excellent, Patrick. Um, I guess I want to start out uh, with a quick story and, and bring it in. I, uh, I read 1984 to my kids uh, aloud, and in the last scene of the, of the book, um, Smith says, oh, my God, it was, here's the background. There's been a war between, like, Oceania and, and Asia, and Big Brother's uh, troops win. And Smith says, oh, my God, I love Big Brother. And in that moment, uh, a bullet goes through Smith's head. And my son, I think it was probably 10 or 11 at the time, said, oh, my God, this really is a masterpiece. And so I think the brilliance of Orwell is, I guess, coupled not only is he able to um, have a philosophical analysis, but there's also a literary genius to him as well. Um, so, Patrick, can you speak a little bit about, um, I'll call it the literary aspects of it that make it so, so good, his uh, ministry of truth, his coinisms of, of phenomena that is on, on its face so complicated but can quickly, in a few words, make it so real and so uh, problematic for the, that theme? Well, I think he's particularly strong at depicting characters. Sometimes in the books, they really are himself, in books like Homage to Catalonia or Down and Out in Paris and London. And sometimes they're fictional transfigurations of himself. But in every case, he makes the character seem incredibly vulnerable uh, and, 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 to, and shows the character trying to hang on to a basic sense of decency in the face of powers and authorities which are going to be too strong for him. So you, he's very, very talented at creating the sense of the underdog struggling for his dignity and sometimes even to stay alive at all. But then beautiful coinages like the Ministry of Truth, where, where nothing but lies takes place, and doublespeak, the constant tendency of the regime to, to forcibly prevent the telling of simple truths, because truth is, is the thing that's going to threaten the, uh, the, the authority of the regime itself. He, there's also a great moment when Winston Smith is being uh, tortured or he's, he's being prepared for torture by O'Brien when he still thinks, surely this regime justifies itself according to some higher criterion like the triumph of the proletariat. But O'Brien says, oh no, we're just doing it for power itself. And I think that's a great moment where Orwell blows the lid off the pretensions of regimes to say, eventually there's going to be one so cynical and so power-hungry, it's not even going to pretend that it's interested in some higher principle. Yeah, that, it, that is fantastic. Um, but if you like in that scene uh, in Room 101, um, they're able to figure out exactly the thing that he was most scared of. In this case, it was like, a rat in a cage being opened up and being allowed to eat through them or something. And all of us have, I guess, our biggest fears. And uh, Orwell uniquely is able to capture that concept and just drive it home, even though it has nothing to do with the general themes of the book. It's, again, another literary strategy to um, kind of make us very scared and upset. That's right. I think there was quite a lot of 
of uh, early 20th century literature about heroic resistance to torture and heroic resistance to psychological manipulation. Uh, there's a terrific scene, for example, in Arthur Kerstler's Arrival and Departure, where the principal character is able to resist his communist torturers. But I think Orwell takes the more realistic view of saying, no, no, uh, once the torturers have worked out what we fear most, we're going to be absolutely incapable of, of holding out. Julia, the, the woman he loves and, and whose love is the, the central um, phenomenon of the novel, which keeps our hopes alive, instantly gives him away when she's tortured by what she fears most. And similarly, his, his knowledge that the rats might gnaw at his face, he simply hasn't got the resourcefulness to resist it. I think that's a realistic appreciation of the power of totalitarian torturers. Well, I think the relevance of Orwell today, um, you know, it was so relevant almost immediately with, um, I'll call it doublespeak and information coming for, from regimes. But there was this other character whose job it was, was to, once someone has been in a show trial, that they have to be removed from history. They'll have to remove them from the newspapers. They'll remove them from photographs. It would be like they never existed. And I don't know what you know, the Stalinist regime did in that regard, but it reflects a technology that probably is now capable. And maybe just as a metaphor, we had Alan Dershowitz a couple of weeks ago talk about cancel culture and that they would be forever you know, stigmatized. How do you think about some of Orwell's basic themes as it applies, as technology improves, and to our current society? It clearly does have a relevance. Uh, when the Soviet Union wanted to get rid of the memory of Trotsky, it did what we'd regard as incredibly primitive uh, jobs of um, removing his face from photographs, but they're easily detectable as forgeries. The growing sophistication of things like photoshopping uh, pictures today makes it incomparably more difficult for us to know what's fake and what's real. And obviously the success of, um, of Internet interference, but possibly in the 2016 election by Russians working on behalf of Trump, has shown that it can be done very effectively. And, of course, we've also seen demonstrations of the power that the um, technology companies have. Although I'm very glad that Trump was um, thrown off Twitter and wasn't uh, commenting during the recent inauguration, there's no question that that shows you the great political power that Twitter has. And so when regimes are themselves running uh, sophisticated technology organizations like that, we, do, we really do have a, a situation which might reasonably be described as Orwellian. Just thinking about what's happened to sales of his book, every time there's a, a new threatening political situation or a new threatening political phenomenon, uh, sales of 1984 spike very sharply. Uh, they spiked when, just after Trump's inauguration, one of his press secretaries began to talk about alternative facts. And, of course, that sounded just like doublespeak. Back in uh, Nixon's day, I was very interested to hear the previous speaker talking about intense hatred of Nixon. You probably remember that he had a press secretary, I think it was Ron Ziegler, who made a statement which was then shown to be untrue. And then he said something like, um, oh, that statement is no longer operative. In other words, I was lying, but now I know I can't give you that lie anymore, so now I'm going to give you another one. Moments like that lead to increases in sales of the book. So I do think Orwell, who's, I think he's probably the best-selling novelist of the whole 20th century, has, even though he was, luckily he was wrong in predicting that Britain and America would be totalitarian states by the 1980s, was very good at foreseeing some of the ways in which manipulation of technology 
uh, adds to the power of regimes. So this you is mentioned. Uh, can can I ahead, jump in and ask a question here? No, yes, go ahead. Um, the um, Orwell died young uh, uh, and, and didn't see his. Could, and you've been a good stu uh, uh, student of him. Uh, do you think he, he, if he'd lived uh, to a normal lifespan, he would have stayed a socialist? Yes, I do. I think his deepest principle was his hatred of inequality. It, the difference is that he might have developed a, a more grudging respect for the powers of capitalism in the 1950s and 60s during that prolonged economic boom. But there's no question that he's someone who came from the British upper classes and wanted to get rid of his class privilege and wanted to become a, a, a far more ordinary person in economic terms than he'd started out as. One of the paradoxes of, of his reputation is that since his death, everybody's tried to claim he thought in the way that we now think, and if he was alive now, he would be one of us. But overwhelmingly, the socialists still have the best case to make because he was, he was very explicit. We've got to get rid of capitalism because it's based on inequality, and inequality is intolerable. And we've got to get rid of all forms of class privilege. Ironically, during World War II, he wrote a, a great little pamphlet called The Lion and the Unicorn, in which he, he said, the only way Britain's going to win this war is by having an internal social, socialist revolution. Well, no sooner did the war end than the Labour Party came into office for the first time, nationalized many of the great industries, nationalized the universities, set up the National Health Service. Uh, but almost at once, you know, um, Orwell didn't say, think, oh, this is the situation I was hoping for. He started grumbling that the government hadn't abolished the House of Lords. In other words, he was far to the left uh, even of the, the British labor movement at the time when it was very powerful. I think the most illuminating remark he made as a guide to his own politics was this. The worst enemy of socialism is communism. That sounds very paradoxical to American audiences because the um, propaganda against socialism for so long assumed that socialism and communism were more or less on a continuum. But as far as he was concerned, they were polar antagonists. And that the great thing about socialism was that it was democratic and that it was based on genuine equality, whereas communism was dictatorial and was based on the, the rule of a narrow uh, elite, which was going to be repressive and cynical. So although lots of people through the, through the late 20th century made persuasive arguments in favor of the idea that Orwell might be one of them, I think they were kidding themselves and that the socialists continue had to, to have the best case to make. Um, pa Patrick? Yeah. Uh, this is Gary Fine. Hi, Gary. And, uh, I, I wanted to ask, you, you raised Twitter as, as an example, uh, the way that Twitter censors uh, Facebook, the same thing, uh, YouTube. And I'm wondering, today is the danger, the Orwellian danger from capitalist enterprises that are doing those very things that Orwell was talking about the state doing in 1984? Well, there's, a, there's the possibility that they might start to do so. So I suppose I'm in favor of a situation in which the companies are uh, offset by the capacity of the government to regulate them. In other words, in a mixed economy, which we have and which I favor, uh, it's true that 
uh, capitalists can often make threatening gestures, but it's also true that government can regulate them. So the American situation now is much better than the situation in somewhere like China, where there's no countervailing power, and the state, in effect, has a monopoly on, on access to information. But is, isn't Gary's question that um, censorship by either party against political speech is problematic at its core, and that you wouldn't want to limit political speech as a core principle. And the fact that these, the platform for speaking happens to be capitalistic oriented, like Twitter, does that justify limiting speech as a uh, constitutional or moral issue? Is that, Gary, where you were headed? Yes, uh, essentially. That, you know, now we are seeing Twitter making decisions as to what can occur in, in the public sphere. Well, my answer to that would be that there there should always be a very strong presumption against censorship, and there should always be a presumption in favor of the maximum access to information. But when the when the purveyors of some of that information are deliberately ignoring the truth in the most elementary sense, then I'm sympathetic to the idea of these of, of Twitter, for example, saying, we're no longer going to countenance that, and what other, whatever other companies want to know, we're not going to put up with it. Uh, I, I agree that there's a very serious moral issue there, but I don't think there's much of a, I don't think there's a very strong argument to be made on behalf of people whose intention is to uh, regale us with uninterrupted falsehoods. Let me uh, go back to another theme of Gary's talk, which was uh, demonization of the opposition almost at the outset. And in Animal Farm, which you were discussing earlier, uh, Orwell introduces Snowball, who I believe was the character who most resembled Trotsky. And uh, and in that Trotsky character, you know, that guy, that pig had been thrown off the farm, you know, years ago, and yet he had been demonized. Whenever anything goes wrong on Animal Farm, the blame is always on Snowball, and that Snowball and a conspiracy of, uh, that Snowball is leading is what's causing the failure of, uh, or the lack of efficiency or the plans of, of the leadership. Um, how do you think about Snowball's character in combination and the demonization uh, for some of the themes that Gary was talking about earlier? Well, it's clearly very useful for regimes to have scapegoats, particularly authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. And, and uh, Trotsky certainly served that function for the Soviet Union. And I, I agree also with Gary's general comment that certain politicians who've already got a, um, a long reputation for, for standing for certain things before they come into office are likely to generate, or to, to generate polarizing passions of intense um, hatred or love and hatred. But luckily, I think in our society, it's never gone anywhere like so far as it did in, in the Soviet Union. Orwell was clearly describing a real situation. One of the things that's so horrifying about reading uh, the history of the show trials, and in fact reading about the Soviet Union in general during the 1930s, is that whenever anything went wrong, it was always described as sabotage. In other words, they were completely unwilling to admit uh, human weakness or the unrealistic character of the five-year plan or... Um, happenstance is what's led to our, our problem. Always the, the claim was that it's sabotage and, it, and it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's the sinister Trotskyists. That's why, uh, and not only that, but then the, the show trials forced 
innocent people to, to claim that they had in fact been saboteurs. Luckily, we don't have everything, anything comparable in our society. That's why the, the freedom of the press and freedom of information is such, and freedom of speech are so incredibly valuable and things we should cherish. And that's a point that Orwell did understand very well. Patrick, thank you. Um, we're going to move on to our next speaker, Bill Fischel, who is Professor of Economics and Professor of Legal Studies Emeritus at Dartmouth. Bill, go ahead. Okay, this is Bill Fischel. Um, I'm going to talk about the uh, book I wrote uh, almost a decade ago called Making the Grade. Uh, uh, and it's actually a little bit offbeat. It makes you sound like it's going to be about educational uh, theory, and it's really about school districts. Uh, I became an institutional theorist uh, and wanted to know why America has school districts and, uh, and uh, what they do uh, uh, and how they function. Uh, America has uh, 13,000 school districts. Uh, that's down a lot from the 1920s when we had about 200,000, most of them one-room schools. And the three points that I want to make in my six minutes here, which I actually should actually start, uh, are um, uh, that uh, that our school system is a standardized, offers a standardized system of education across a very large nation. And this standardized system of education is relatively unspecialized, and I want to make it the case that that's a good thing. It's a big country. We have lots of mobility. My second point is that this system, our public schools, which are more or less interchangeable, did not result from central direction, but were rather a kind of Adam Smithian spontaneous order. They evolved efficiently, or at least they evolved, uh, you may disagree about the efficiency, without much central direction. It wasn't about Horace Mann. And third, my point is that we look to school districts, the reason we kind of like our school districts and we like our local schools is not just because of education for children, but because of the social capital they generate for adults. So let me unpack those three points here. Um, schools are standardized and you can say that they're mediocre because they're standardized. That doesn't necessarily happen to be the case. Japan has very specialized schools, a centrally directed curriculum, and it's nearly impossible for a Japanese family, socially at least it's impossible for a Japanese family to change schools. Uh, I, I, I interviewed some people at Dartmouth uh, about this a few years ago, and, and uh, one had actually come to Dartmouth with his kids. Uh, and uh, uh, he's told me that he was going back uh, uh, shortcutting his experience here because uh, he needed to put his kids in school in April. Uh, that's when the Japanese schools start, the time of the cherry blossoms. Uh, and he also said something or pointed me to some literature about re-entry to Japanese schools. If you get out of a Japanese school, uh, it's very difficult to get back into it to get back into the swing. It's their, their highly specialized curriculum and a culturally specific curriculum. Uh, he worried that his uh, kids who were learning English in America would be corrected for their bad English by Japanese teachers of English uh, because uh, they have a highly specialized way of teaching English, uh, which is why you can't understand Japanese people very well. Uh, so 
our standardized system doesn't impose a national curriculum on people, but it is standardized enough that you can, I did this, take your second grader out of schools in New Hampshire and enroll them in a school in Santa Barbara, California, and expect that second grade is going to be second grade. Uh, and it was. Uh, they did the same thing in eighth grade. My kid might hate me for this. Uh, take him out of school in seventh grade and start him in eighth grade in Berkeley, California. Uh, and, it was, it, and he fit right in. So that, that's a good thing because it allows me as a college professor or allowed anybody who wanted to change a job to drag their kids along with them, put them into schools, uh, and, uh, and start them off. So standardization and not too specialized a curriculum is a good thing. There are an example of spontaneous order. They evolved without central direction. When we think about 200,000 school districts evolving into uh, uh, 13,000 school districts we have now, it really involved a huge switch in technology. The one-room school was a low-tech system that was very well adapted for the circumstances of rural America when kids couldn't go to school continuously. So they went to school when they could, they were put in a recitation group, and it didn't. And the recitation groups were very heterogeneous with respect to age. They didn't have a standard uh, uh, first, second, third grade. Uh, the one-room school was just recitation groups, which you could come in and come out of. That was great for learning reading, writing, and arithmetic, literally. But that's all you could learn. The teacher did not have enough time to teach people more than that. Once high school education became a big deal, as Claudia Golden and Larry Katz described in their book uh, about education in around 1900, this was a huge payoff for American kids and people wanted high schools. This required consolidation of schools, getting rid of one-room schools, and the motivation for that was not because Horace Mann thought it was a good idea. Uh, Horace Mann barely ever got what he wanted. Uh, it was because parents of children wanted that school, wanted that kind of schools. What else was advantageous of for, for American schools? They provide social capital for parents. When you move into a new community, talking about mobility again, and you send and you uh, buy a house or live in an apartment in a neighborhood, you'll hardly know anybody outside of work. Then you'll have kids, and you'll send them to school, and you'll know everybody. This is, this, the evidence for this is what I call the bobblehead effect. I would give this in seminars with young professionals who have just moved from one place to another, and they all guess, yeah, that's exactly right. So that's my uh, evidence on social capital. You get to know people in your community, and this social capital is useful for providing public goods and local government. Thank you. That's all I got to say. Great. Um, I guess my first question, comparing centralized and de decentralized curriculum, would be not to maybe uh, compare to the United States with Japan, but maybe compare to the United States with France. Because I understand that it, and I do not thought. <laughs> yeah. I don't so know I never much about French France. school. But I've always heard that there's a French curriculum and that anywhere in the world, uh, if you went to a French school, they would be teaching exactly that same idea, that same theme, that same, uh, if you learn about, you know, Napoleon, oh, that's week six, you know, sophomore year, right, boom. Right, right, right. Um, 
And in the American schools, uh, we don't have that. Um, and But the French, I can imagine, is being highly centralized. Uh, the exact opposite theme of, of the American system. And so as you think about France versus the U.S., um, how do you think about that comparison? Well, uh, number one, first, I think American system is good for Americans. It might not be good. The Japanese system might be just great for J Japanese and the French system. So I'm a generic person here. I'm not saying that we should export our system to other places. Uh, but the, uh, the American system has more standardization than you might think. When is your kid going to study American literature? It will be 11th grade everywhere, almost everywhere. Uh, the school calendar, when do we start school? The end of summer. People used to think, still think actually, that this has something to do with kids having to work in the school farm in, in the summer, which is completely false. Kids in the 19th century were needed on the farm when the farm was really busy, which was spring and fall, and they didn't go to school then. They went to school in the summer and the winter. So our school calendar is not about summer working on the farm. It is about coordination, allowing kids, allowing families to move from one place to another. Summer's a good time to move, good time to take a vacation to, and then end up in Berkeley, California, or Houston, Texas, or wherever, and enroll your kids in school in the third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. That's why I was asking Betsy, by the way, about what she was doing with her kids when they moved to Australia. Because yeah, in the summer, in the Southern Hemisphere, there's a Summer Hemisphere calendar, uh, and, and the um, uh, people there uh, uh, do indeed uh, adhere to the, uh, the, the, the seasonal move just like, like we do. But if you go there from Northern Hemispheres, uh, you, you've got to contend with coming in in the middle of their school year or, or at the beginning of a school year when it's in the middle of your school year. Uh, the State Department actually has a list of these things, and there are schools in a list of schools in, in the Southern Hemisphere countries, South Africa, South America, uh, Australia, that actually keep a Northern Hemisphere calendar. They call it that. Uh, so you can bop back into back up to London or Toronto or, or Beijing or wherever and, uh, and, not, uh, uh, and, and not blow your kids out of their, uh, their, their routine. So we have, a, we, have a, we have a lot of, uh, of water, actually. You know, in your book, you spend uh, some time talking about the role of social capital, uh, and you use Robert Putnam's framework for analyzing the question. Um, and so if you, you rightly point out that we meet a lot of new friends and, uh, and people in the community through the local schools where you may not do so in a private school. Uh, or if, you, if your kids commute long distances. Um, currently in COVID, um, we're learning from home. Um, social interactions have collapsed. Uh, we don't go to Little League games anymore. Um, I'm just wondering how you think about how the current environment will undermine social capital and whether or not you know, taking a year or a year and a half off is going to have a catastrophic uh, effect on relationships in local communities, local school districts, et cetera? Uh, you know, I had not thought of that at all, but it does impress upon me that, at least in my neck of the woods, the one exception that, that people are making to, uh, uh, to, to, for, for isolation is the schools. They're really trying to get the kids back into schools in person. And uh, sports, uh, uh, 
high school and, and junior high school sports are being promoted, uh, are being allowed, even though they present some risks to uh, to the adults and, and, and other people. So I, I think uh, your your point is well taken that that's that's very important, and that is you know to the extent that people can't participate in those things, that is a real loss that uh, that uh, beyond the, the the difficulties of learning things on on uh, on, on Zoom. Well, you, the example you give in the book is sort of like the water cooler. You know, you you go to a, a Little League game or you go to a parent curriculum session and you you meet other families, other parents at the event, and from that you can then kind of build a social capital within the local community. I think that it's that water cooler uh, effect that's really going to be problematic for social capital building. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so, so I, I think this is a uh, this is an untold cost of uh, of of the isolation caused by uh, the current pandemic, and I can only hope we'll get 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 past it. Um, so, but but that's a very good point. Um, and I actually, oddly, I had not really thought about that. My my, my and son the, and daughter-in-law it, are both teachers, so I should have thought about this. <laughs> in your first point, it dealt with school system standardization across a large nation. And um, in your book, you mentioned that there were certain readers in the 19th century that were consistently used in run-room schoolhouses across the United States. But then as high schools developed, um, different school districts used different textbooks, um, covered different uh, literary works, for example. Um, I mean, ironically, um, I sent my children to private school in New York, and I looked at their reading lists in English literature, and we didn't read any of the same books. It seems that um, on the one hand, when schools are given tremendous liberty, uh, their choices of English literature is completely different than uh, what I was uh, offered. For example, there's uh, no Russian literature, there's no French literature. Uh, things have gotten you know, very different um, in their choices. But um, one aspect of the George W. Bush administration is the advent of a common core. And for that, they now use a common textbook for math and science courses, maybe even history. I've wondered if you thought about how curriculum choices and centralization uh, have resulted in certain benefits of standardization and um, maybe in the English department why it's, where it's gone more dispersed. I, um, the, um, my first response is, A, they, they are reading English literature, and English literature is very varied, and the, the point of education here is not to read a particular thing, but to read literature and learn to uh, analyze literature. So I think that's my loosely standardized view of, yeah, we have, you've you got to do English literature, you've got to do American literature, you've got to do some algebra. Uh, just how you learn it and what textbooks you learn it are, are heterogeneous. Uh, they were back e even when McGuffey's Reader was the standard uh, uh, book, uh, and, and not everybody had McGuffey's Reader. Uh, there, there was uh, there was still a lot of heterogeneity in that, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think Common Core is problematic, in so far as if you're going to have a Common Core, then you have to show, demonstrate to the higher ups who are providing your funding that you're teaching the kids the Common Core. Uh, and then you're going to have to test them on the Common Core, and that's going to put this put us in the French lockstep. Uh, the French, as I say, the system might be just fine for French, but it would not be very good for Americans because we do not respond well to lockstep. 
And uh, and I think I, myself, I think we are over-testing and teaching to test way too much. Uh, and fortunately, I think people are, are gradually getting around to agreeing with that. Uh, Common Core is, uh, I, I don't think it's dead, but it's certainly fallen by the wayside, and I do not expect it to be promoted in the Biden administration. In a similar theme, I believe last week, um, the College Board, who does the SATs, announced that they would discontinue subject tests, or in my day, it was called the achievement tests. These right. were subject-related tests for English, U.S. history, European history, math two, et cetera. Um, how do you feel about that um, in terms of the withdrawal of, of standardized exams uh, that test content versus, I'll call it, intelligence-type questions like the SAT, where they ask questions like, you know, A is to B, as C is to D. It's in lieu yeah, of yeah. asking, um, you know, who fought in the Civil War. Um, well, uh, just a factual question. I thought that the SAT was doing, uh, the uh, College Board was withdrawing that just for the, the, uh, for the pandemic, for, and that they were going to reinstate it later. Uh, oh, I... That was my. I may have missed that. Was, that. I thought it was. I thought it was finished. But maybe you're right. Uh, so, uh, I, I actually do have some problem with the uh, with, with these uh, subject tests or uh, achievement tests as they are, uh, and I don't think I'm the only one. My uh, local high school, which is very good, I didn't go to it, but my son went to it, uh, refuses to do uh, to, to to teach to that test. They uh, they offer advanced courses, but they don't call them AP this and AP that. Uh, and I think they do a much better job and, uh, have, and attract much more creative teachers as a result. Uh, Dartmouth College, uh, somewhat to my surprise and to some people's consternation, stopped giving credit for the AP. Uh, they'll give you placement, so if you if you place into advanced calculus, they'll put you in a more advanced calculus test. But they will not give you college credit for it. And my experience as a department chair and looking at the uh, AP test in economics was, yeah, these kids can fill in the blanks well enough, but they do not understand economics very well. And good numbers of them who, who aced their AP tests uh, ended up taking starting over after they started an intermediate course and discovered they were completely over their heads. So I, I think these are not these these tests. These tests are very problematic on many different dimensions about how they distort teaching and so forth. I'm not saying we shouldn't have any tests. But uh, the the emphasis on them is uh, is is excessive. I th and, and you know the question is how are you going to know if your schools are good? I can tell you how they're good. Your real estate market tells you. Your housing prices go down if your schools go south, and they go up if your schools go north. That is, they go to get better. Uh, that's the most well established. Uh, 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 thing about housing market capitalization is good schools sell houses. Um, so, so uh, I, I don't think we need tests to to uh, to uh, uh, to get on you know to, to regulate the uh, student or teacher behavior very much. Thank you, Bill. All right, we're now going to move on to Betsy Stevenson. Betsy is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. She's going to discuss the labor market. Betsy, go ahead. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back. So I want to talk about uh, three things. Uh, the first is to give a big picture assessment of the labor market. The second is to talk about the ways in which it will change as our economy recovers. And the third is to talk about unemployment insurance. 
The U.S. economy in December 2020 had 10 million fewer jobs than it had in February 2020, and roughly a million people a week continue to file new claims for unemployment insurance. That remains a higher flow into unemployment insurance than the worst weeks of the 2008 recession. The total number of people claiming unemployment insurance was 16 million for the last full week of December, but it's worth noting that the unemployment insurance data is fraught with double counting as the states try to manage claims that are funded through five different programs. The U.S. economy is a service-based economy, and this was actually our first service sector-led recession. The goods-producing sector provided half of all jobs in the middle of the last century and today provides fewer than 17%. In the 2009 recession, half of all jobs lost were lost in the goods-producing sector. In 2020, roughly 10% of the jobs lost were in the goods-producing sector. To put this in perspective, in February 2020, the goods sector still had a million fewer jobs than it had at the start of the 2008 recession. In contrast, the service sector had added 15 million jobs. Most recessions accelerate creative destruction, meaning job loss disproportionately occurs in businesses and industries that are struggling, and the downturn speeds up what is in many cases the inevitable. In the recovery, we see new businesses arise and a shift to new industries. In the last recession, the growth of service jobs more than made up for the loss of jobs in the goods sector that never recovered. This recession has been different in that the circumstances hit businesses that would have otherwise remained viable uh, perhaps forever, but it also accelerated pre-existing trends that will continue long past the recession. So there is that destruction part. This brings me to my second point. Certain industries are going to go through a painful restructuring because demand for the pre-pandemic ways of doing businesses will never return. Many industries like restaurants will see demand surge post-pandemic, particularly I anticipate high-end restaurants. In contrast, Main Street retail will struggle to ever fully rebuild. Consumers have learned to shop online and developed new habits. So some, not all of it, but much of it may stick. For example, people will return to physical gyms, but the surge in adoption of home and virtual products will retain a higher market share and make it difficult for some gyms to recover. Disruptions are easier to take when they are slow. So the sudden acceleration of these trends will create a lot of confusion about what should and shouldn't return with appropriate government support. So expect a lot of chaos, I think, in the public policy space. Rising inequality and the declining labor share have also been accelerated. Technology saved many jobs in this recession and allowed people to be more productive than ever uh, in some cases during the pandemic but it's also led to the growth or further growth of superstar businesses that have increased market power over other businesses and their workers. These businesses are partially responsible for the decline in the labor share of income that we've seen over decades, and that's why I expect to continue to see uh, this rise in inequality and decline in the labor share stick post-pandemic. 
Let me turn to a question around one group of people, women. The story here has been widely told. Women left the labor force to take care of kids, but many tried to juggle it all and are experiencing enormous strain. Many women who worked throughout the pandemic may actually drop out, take time off, or see their careers stall even as the recovery increases. Businesses are concerned about losing talent, so I expect childcare, workplace flexibility, and burnout to be very important labor market issues in 2021 and 2022. Let me turn to my final point. Congress has provided much needed help to the unemployed by extending the CARES Act unemployment insurance programs. The bonus checks get the most attention, but the program that expanded benefits to people who don't normally get help is more important. This program gave unemployment insurance to sole proprietors and independent contractors. Uber drivers or other gig workers are what people picture and what gets the attention. But in reality, the shift to independent contracting, sole proprietorship is occurring across industries and occupations and the income distribution. The safety net is not prepared to support people in these kinds of jobs because they're not seen as workers and they're really too small to be seen as a business. The CARES Act gave them a lifeline, but they got hit hard by the pandemic as many employers cut contractors, even ones that could work from home. Yet I expect freelancers, gig workers, and small business owners with no employees to continue to grow as a share of the labor market. One concern in the next few months is that the government has paid out hundreds of billions of dollars in unemployment insurance, all of which is taxable income. And yet the vast majority of recipients have not held, had taxes withheld from those payments. The can was kicked down the road, hoping that people would be in better financial shape by April. Yet based on the dynamics of the virus and employment, these folks are still likely to be broke by April. The K-shaped recovery means there's a savings glut at the top of the income distribution, and yet the bottom and much of the middle are out of savings, and many are still out of work. This will not only mean struggling to pay those taxes come April, but it's going to shape spending patterns and therefore job growth for the next few years. Thank you. Thanks, Betsy. That was great. Um, I guess I want to start with this idea about um, what jobs are going to happen in the future and the role with struggling industry. And I guess the first one I want to uh, idea I want to pass you by is. Um, something that Chad Spearson had on our call, where he mentioned that in the last decade or two, we've seen enormous differences in return on capital within the same industry, that the uh, bigger and more successful firms earn sometimes twice as much as firms who, uh, in the same industry who are not doing well. Would your prediction be that when uh, pressure is put to bear on these firms, that those firms will end up going under uh, and the stronger firms will survive? And then my question for you from a labor market perspective is, how is that transition going to work when we have to move workers from, I'll call it, the bottom tier firms to the upper firms? And are there a lot of frictions or transaction costs related uh, to uh, employees moving within industry? And will that effectively result in people moving outside of other industries? And will that reduce productivity, uh, et cetera, as they have specific skills for a given industry? Um. Yeah, so these are great questions. So first of all, I do expect, um, that's sort of what I mean by these sort of superstar firms. They're the ones with uh, the 
uh, highest return to capital, they tend to have a lower labor share. Um, and it's that those firms growing will continue to mean that high return on capital and uh, less, for, uh, less for workers. I think the, the biggest issue there, I think, is the political pressure that will come out of that. I think you're going to see a growing concern about market concentration, about market power, and about uh, the declining labor share. And so how do we, what will be the political economy of that? And you asked about productivity. You know, we just had a surge in adoption of new technology. That's actually going to provide a huge productivity boost. So when a new technology comes about, it usually takes a really long time to show up in the productivity numbers. Um, think about when computers hit the desks. I remember when I was in graduate school, um, you know, there were the papers where there's a computer on every desk, but you know, where's the productivity? Um, what, what I think the pandemic did is got us up to speed learning to use new technology, which I think will be a push in the direction of increasing productivity. But as you said, what we'll be pushing in the opposite direction will be all this destru destruction of uh, firm-specific knowledge. Um, so you've just you know, been separated from your the company you're working for. You've lost that. And maybe even industry-specific knowledge as people have to shift. Um, the, uh, that, I think, is going to accelerate this idea of a K-shaped economy where we've got a bunch of people who are really thriving and a bunch of people who are really struggling. You know, the, the idea of superstars um, is, seems to be continuing to grow. And I'll just give you, you know, uh, that example of, that I gave on gyms. Think about the, you know, the Peloton instructor who's uh, doing quite well financially, and then compare them to you know, the, the spinning instructor at your local gym. It's the spinning instructor at your local gym who's losing their job. What are they going to go off and do? What kind of uh, specialized skills do they have? I think that's the, you know, the, the real concern and about what will happen uh, in the labor market. I mean, I think one of the most amazing aspects of the labor market and COVID is the fact that it, um, it didn't blow up. Um, you know, when you look at the total numbers in the Bureau of Labor Statistics results, you see uh, major declines almost where you'd expect it. Hospitality, restaurants, uh, mainstream retail that you talked about before. Um, but imagine you were in those industries and you knew you weren't going to be able to go back to work for a year. Um, you might want to change industries, find some part-time work, adjust. And I think that although we still have 10 million, which is obviously a catastrophe, um, the fact that we were able to adapt so well, I think speaks volumes as to the flexibility of the American labor market. I, there's definitely a glass half full story to be told here. And I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, the, the thing is the American labor market, the, the strength of it is the number of people who flow in and out of jobs every day, um, you know, uh, every week, every month. And I think people often fail to realize that. You know, I once testified at a congressional hearing where the subject was, there are six million job openings. Why aren't they all filled? 
Well, the thing is, those job openings data, they reflect a point in time. It's a great thing that there were 6 million jobs open on that particular, at that particular point in time, on that particular day. Um, and the, the question is, how quickly do they get filled? So the fact that we have jobs opening every day, closing every day, we have that, that flow is what uh, is really strong here. What I pointed out in my talk is we, have, we are continuing to see people flowing out of jobs at just an unbelievable rate. Uh, you know, that million, you know, 900,000, a million people, new people filing for unemployment insurance each week, that's extraordinary. But at the same time, we only are down 10 million jobs, and that's because there's a bunch of new jobs being created. People are figuring out how to adapt to this new economy very, very quickly. Um, and I think that is the strength uh, and, uh, of, the, of the U.S. economy. And I, I think we'll see people in very different jobs. But the one prediction I have that I feel very confident on is they will continue to be service sector jobs. And just because this was a service sector-led recession does not mean we're going to see the job growth made up for in the goods sector. But we are going to see shifts. You know, for example, I don't think everybody's going to go back to, uh, to working in the office five days a week. I think you've had Nick Bloom on the show talking about that. That's going to really yeah. change where and how people do their work. So if I'm working from home two days a week, then I'm not, getting, I'm not buying lunch from the salad shop by my office five days a week, right? And as a, I'm still going to eat lunch. So that might, you know, uh, that might lead to more delivery coming to, into the suburbs, that might lead to more restaurant growth into the suburbs. We may see a decline in the need for dry cleaning, but people are still going to spend their money on something. Maybe they'll go out to eat more. Maybe they'll have somebody come in and clean their house more. So you know, we're going to see some shifts as people adapt to a new way of living. And I, I do see that, that adaptation. We're not going back to things being the way they were in 2019. We spoke about labor mobility. Um, and you, the first thing we thought of was, what, will they change the industry or the firm they work for? But we're also seeing, I think, a lot of moving around uh, within the United States. Uh, how do you think about uh, these massive movements, for example, out of New York City uh, or to more rural or suburban areas uh, that's driving you know, this desire for low density? Will this continue as well, or do you think this is just a temporary blip? I I think we are going to see some shifts. I mean, I I, I uh, personally think that we have yet to see uh, what's finally going to happen in the commercial real estate market. But I'd be concerned uh, if I was hanging on to commercial real estate right now because I think that a lot of companies are going to say, you know, actually people have been more productive at home, and somebody wants to move to a lower cost of living place to live. That might change what I have to pay them. That makes it easier for me to recruit people. You know, 50% of parents have, but prior to the pandemic, said they had turned down a job because it wasn't going to work for their family. Part of that was about mobility. The more you let people work remotely, the bigger the labor market you have to find the best talent in. And so I think employers are going to uh, to deal with people doing more remote work, but you know maybe I'm hearing some employers talking about you know one week a month you'll come into an office. That's going to mean people can live uh, more uh, uh, diffusely, 
and I, I don't think we'll see that fully unwrap um, over, you know, as we recover. And I will say the other thing people have learned is that it's really good to live near family because of these childcare backups. Um, that has been a trend we've always seen. A large share of people moving, a large share of people with young kids moving at any point in time are, are moving back to, to be near parents, either their in-laws or their parents, grandparents to provide childcare. That accelerated with the pandemic, and I think you know it's always been an important source of childcare backup. Um, I think you're not going to see people who moved near their childcare backup um, be in a big rush to move back to a place where they don't have that. Uh, you mentioned that this is a service sector recession, um, and that people can now work remotely. Uh, that's going to dramatically increase the scope of potential employees, which you mentioned. Uh, but they don't necessarily have to be domestic. Uh, they could be in Europe, they could be in Africa, they could be in India or China as well. Um, and that could put a lot of pressure on service wages and uh, obviously help those uh, in the developing world have a dramatic increase in wages. Um, but taking the perspective from the American e economist, does this working remotely um, make our service sector much more competitive and should we expect um, a decline in real wages, just like the manufacturing sector did when it first found out that um, they would face competitive challenges uh, from the developing world. You know, um, I, the the U.S. Uh, exports are already a third out of the service sector, and it's a growing share. And you know, um, I think roughly a decade ago, uh, an economist predicted that you know we would see a lot of job loss. Uh, to you know, other countries uh, because all these because many different kinds of service jobs could be done remotely, and um, you know even things like call centers. And what they found, you know, in what we've seen instead is that there was a lot of of outsourcing, but that outsourcing happened within the United States rather than external to the United States. So I think there are a lot of good reasons to keep jobs inside the U.S. So the fear of now that I'm on a phone call talking to you, I could be anywhere in the world, so we're going to not hire American workers. Um, I think that fear is usually overblown. I think that American workers have a particular skill set that's going to continue to make them competitive in these jobs. But you know, this, this idea that technology has made, has improved our global reach, I mean, that's been true for decades. If anything, the pandemic has sort of uh, undone some of that by by slamming shut borders because you know again even when you're working remotely there is a desire for occasional in-person uh, uh, you know consultation and the pandemic has made that harder so I certainly don't see the pandemic as as accelerating the trend towards global competition that that was already there and uh, and I think learning how you can better work with American workers um, is is a strength for for the U.S. And as you pointed out, having American workers show how they can better talk to clients in other countries, better interact with clients in other countries, um, you know, is is as strong as the flip side. So I don't see this in any way hurting American competitiveness. Betsy, thank you. Um, we're going to move on to our next speaker, who is Brendan Hoffman. Uh, Brendan is 
currently the president of Wolverine Worldwide. Brendan, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. It's good to be back. As you mentioned, I was here in April talking about the early days of the pandemic and how it impacted the consumer's shopping behavior, seen through the eyes of the fashion industry, my prior role running the lifestyle brand, Vince. In September, I took a new role as president of Wolverine Worldwide, or a portfolio of 11 footwear brands, including Sperry, Merrill, Saucony, and Wolverine. I could probably speak for six minutes about switching jobs during the pandemic, but we'll try to stick on the topic you assigned me. So a little more background on the company. Our 2019 revenues were just north of $2 billion. We're publicly traded under ticker symbol WWW. We're over 135 years old and headquartered in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but have offices around the world. And in fact, about half our pairs are sold outside the U.S. Since we are a public company, any remarks I make specifically about our brands is through the lens of early November when we last reported quarterly results. We report Q4 next month. However, I will provide some commentary on what happened more generally throughout the holiday period from what I've learned from our customers and partners. When I last spoke during the early days of the pandemic, stores were closed and none of us had any idea or could have imagined what the next year would look like. I spoke about how we were pleasantly surprised that the customer had pivoted online. And while it couldn't come close to making up for the closed stores, it was all done at a discount. It generated much needed cash and did allow us to exhale that the consumer would still shop. Fast forward nine months and stores opened back up over the summer. And while traffic generally has been down 40 to 50%, most real retailers reported sales drops that were not nearly as dramatic as anyone willing to venture out to a shopping center was intent on buying. That seemed to have continued into January with traffic improving off those lows and conversion staying high. More importantly, e-commerce has boomed in all areas. McKinsey Consulting reported that over 10 years of e-commerce development was accelerated into six months. Specific to Wolverine, our e-commerce business on our own sites was $235 million in 2019, and we stated in November that our goal for 2021 is $500 million. I would estimate that as two or three years ahead of when we otherwise would have expected to reach that milestone pre-pandemic. What we have also seen is a shift in the categories consumers are buying. Anything having to do with being outside has seen a lift for obvious reasons. For us, that has greatly benefited brands like Merrill and Saucony. Merrill's the number one brand for hiking, and however you want to define hike, whether it's hiking the Appalachian Trail or, like me, hiking around my neighborhood on a socially distant walk, brands like Merrill have greatly benefited. And here's a plug for our franchise shoe, the Moab. Similarly, there has been a rooming, running boom since the start of the pandemic. Saucony is one of the leading running brands competing against others in our sector like Nike, Brooks, and Hoka. Again, whether you are a true runner logging multi-miles a week or just walking with friends, it's been a great tailwind for brands like Saucony. And another shameless plug, our endorphin collection was launched last year and has won multiple industry awards if you're looking for the best sneaker to walk or run in. Another category that has been lifted by the change in consumer behavior is the work boot category. Wolverine is the number one brand in the sector, which caters to workers in factories, warehouses, etc. Industries that have been working tirelessly to support all of us as we hoard toilet paper and other essential items. Businesses like Amazon will give their warehouse employees coupons to purchase their footwear in order to provide the highest level of safety and comfort to keep them on their feet. With the extended hours and shifts that have resulted during the pandemic, our work brands like Wolverine, Cat, and Hightest have benefited. 
The same is true for frontline workers who are on their feet all day, and many of our brands cater specific styles to literally support them. Obviously, the examples I gave go beyond footwear as the apparel and accessories needed to participate in outdoor activities and or support the efforts of those at work have benefited as well. While it pains me to say it, the clear winner of 2020 was Crocs. They've been benefited from all the above as well as being well positioned as a slip-on comfort shoe to benefit from all those working from home or just staying home looking for the path of least resistance when getting ready for the day. In April when I spoke, I mentioned that online sales were driven by deep discounts otherwise would not have been offered as we all worried about the buildup of inventories. However, however, as we got into the back half of the year, promotions normalized, and for many of the categories I mentioned above were less promotional than the prior year. There were the typical Black Friday and Cyber Monday promotions that the customers become accustomed to, and they started earlier to try and compensate for the reduced store hours during the holiday period. But very quickly, demand was outpacing supply in key categories. This was both because the shift to categories like outdoors and performance wasn't anticipated pre-pandemic, but also because most every manufacturer halted production in March for a few months while the early days of the pandemic played out. Likewise, the retailers cut all their on orders since they didn't know when they could open up their doors. The result of this is that demand way outstrips supply in many of these categories, reducing the need for the typical end-of-year clearance events. I would anticipate these leaner inventories continuing into the first half of 2021, as factories that were forced to close have not been able to ramp up back to their pre-pandemic levels, especially as new waves of the virus have occurred, further complicating access to the workforce. All of this has been exasperated by the transportation logistics backlog caused by the dramatic reduction in air freight from Asia, causing the need for more freight to go by sea, both driving up the costs and causing huge delays as the ports and pathways are overloaded. Of course, as categories have benefited from the shift in consumer behavior, others have been decimated. I'm glad I'm not manufacturing men's suits or in the brown shoe business right now. Globally, we've seen shopping patterns mirror the U.S. in the shift to online. However, depending on the region, we have seen physical stores bounce back at different levels to the U.S. depending on the response to the pandemic. China, for example, recovered quite quickly last summer, and we continued our aggressive rollout of Saucony and Merrill stores in the back half of the year. Although with the resurgence of the virus and the new strain, we will see what the next few months look like. I can go on further, but I think my six minutes are up, so I'll turn it back over to Larry. Okay, Brendan, I, I just want to reflect on a story um, from 2008 uh, when we had lunch. Um, we had lunch at the Ward and Taylor, and I asked um, what it was like in the men's department. And you said that if you fired a machine gun in the men's department, you would only nick a scarf. Uh, nobody would be down there. And I asked why, and you said, well, men, you know, if they don't buy a suit for a while, it's like no big deal. Um, they can just deal with it. And I'm wondering, um, you mentioned the issues related to apparel. Um, are there whole sectors of apparel and footwear that depend upon uh, business casual or, 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 or business work uh, for both men and women that have been just completely obliterated? Um, and do you feel like this is going to be a trend uh, about how we currently dress is how we want to dress going forward? Is, is it going to affect broadly, is it a temporary phenomena or is this something more permanent? 
Well, first of all, Larry, I didn't know you were taking notes when we met 13 years ago, and, uh, and I would never uh, advocate violence, so I think you misquoted me there. But, um, no, I was just saying it's But nevertheless, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, as you see some of the bankruptcies that, that have happened in my industry, you know, Brooks Brothers, uh, Men's Warehouse, you know, while, while they're certainly uh, pointing fingers to the pandemic, I mean, you know, they were on that steep decline for, for over a decade, as, as, as your comments uh, uh, reflect. And, and so I think, again, as we've heard uh, many times, this uh, crisis is just accelerating trends and, and the way we dress and the way we work, as Betsy just mentioned, in terms of uh, how the workforce is, is going to work remotely or, or in office is going to have a uh, forever change on on the way we dress. I mentioned in my remarks that uh, Crocs, you know, was, uh, was, was the shoe of the year. And um, uh, think what you want about how fashionable it looks. It, it checks off a lot of boxes for the way we're living our life today in, in terms of functionality, comfort, and ease. And so those are the trends we're seeing in, in, in our, you know, with our, with, amongst our brands as well. And, and um, I mentioned in my remarks, I'm glad I don't own a brown shoe company. That's, you know, a, a company that makes dress shoes, you know, traditional lace-up dress shoes. And uh, those are going to be, uh, I, I, while, while there will always be a place for them, I think the, uh, the need for them will be far reduced. It was interesting, and I saw some data the other week from uh, NPD, which, which gives market share data. And uh, what, what struck me in Q4 ending December was women's footwear across all the different categories declined about 15 points while men's was only down two or three points. And so, oh, you know, I think that speaks to just the lack of, uh, of, of dress apparel and, and uh, you know, uh, dress shoes and high heels that uh, they're being bought now. But, but that being said, I do think there will be some revenge purchasing that happens when, when, the, when the world opens back up, speaking of my own home. Uh, my focus group of one with my wife, who I know has shopped less or at least shopped differently. I know she will not hesitate when the world opens back up to uh, to go after that dress shoe category again. Betsy mentioned in her talk that um, Main Street uh, retail uh, is going to be having troubles. Now, you mentioned uh, that your 2019 revenue for $2 billion and that you were looking forward for $500 million, about $1 in $4 spent would be on e-commerce. And 2021 is going to be sort of a weird year because it's going to be, I'll call it a part COVID year. But let's say it was 2022. Um, what do you kind of expect uh, from mainstream retail to sell your shoes or to, to, to come back as a place to shop? Um, we knew it was in decline. Is it really going to accelerate in its decline? How do you think about mainstream retail as a, a path for you to sell your product? Well, I, I think it's always going to be an important part of the channel mix, but I think that, uh, you know, there's no question the trend was happening uh, towards e-commerce. Uh, truthfully, the trend was happening, happening towards owned e-commerce, meaning brands like ours trying to sell through their own websites rather than uh, other websites. Um, and, you know, that's just, as I said, picked up two or three years in our own business uh, over the last 12 months. And so um, you see the biggest shoe company in the world, Nike, talking about how their main focus is direct-to-consumer, i.e. e-commerce, and that they're actually pulling out of a lot of their wholesale partners' websites and brick-and-mortar to try to run more directly through the consumer. Obviously, that has a lot of positive um, consequences for a brand. You, you, you double the margin, you own the customer data, 
you, you storytell directly with no interference. So there's, uh, there's a lot of positive things, and, and it's, it's, it's what we were doing at Vince, and it's what we're going to be doing at, uh, at Wolverine is trying to accelerate and invest in those areas while still having um, partners that can um, reach customers that we otherwise wouldn't have. I will tell you, in, in, the, in, in our field, Amazon is a very important partner for us and a very good partner for us. So uh, these digital titans will, will, will gain in importance as well. Just, I, um, during the beginning of, of COVID, I too decided to buy a, sh uh, a pair of Merrill shoes because I was going on walks that were kind of muddy, so I needed a, a, an outdoor shoe. Um, but I bought it on Amazon. How do you get um, customers like me to show up on your website and not Amazon's website? How do you succeed in doing that so you can get all those benefits of both margin and storytelling? Yeah, well, again, I, I, you know, I'm glad I just mentioned Amazon because they are a great partner and a very profitable partner. So uh, I don't know if that would be where I'd burn calories is try to get you off Amazon onto Merrill.com. There are other places that, um, that, that I'll try and uh, get you to Merrill.com. And, and quite frankly, with the Digital Titans, uh, the more assets of ours they use, the more um, uh, direct branding experience we get. So, uh, you know, Amazon, there's a lot of uh, talk about how they own the customer and what they do with that and, and do they share it and, and, and all that is valid. But, but on a balanced scorecard for brands like ours, uh, uh, they're, good, they're a good partner. I want to talk about logistics for a second. So let's imagine that a shipment of shoes is on its way from China to the U.S. and it's, it's going to be a little slower. You want it a little earlier in the season to sell out. Um, and in comes an online shopper who desperately wants the shoe, um, and you can't deliver it at that soon, but you can deliver it. Um, are you able to manage that process and say, you know, um, I will sell you the shoe. Um, I promise it within X number of days so that you have the capability of both making the sale and dealing with the logistical consequences. I mean, for some consumers, I don't think they care when the Merrill show up if it's 14 or 21 days um, relative to like a prime customer who may want it in two. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, that's part of the uh, you know magic of marketing is how you uh, how you interact with your customer to to turn a negative like that into a positive. We might call a pre-order, or we might uh, uh, do something else to let them know when the when the the hot shoe of the moment is is uh, back in stock, even if it wasn't such a hot shoe. It was just as you said, a shipping delay. Uh, but I, but I do think the greater point is. Uh, as I mentioned in my remarks, these logistics are, are going to be real and going to be with us for a, a period of time based on uh, making the proper decision in March and April of last year to shut, um, shut production while we all assess the situation and just the, uh, the, the, the uh, consequences of that are now being felt. You know, they weren't felt so much the first six months because the goods were already in process, but, but now you're seeing it uh, across the board. If you go into stores, if you go online, um, Peloton was mentioned earlier. I mean, the, the, the wait list to get a uh, Peloton now is went from weeks to months, and, and that's one because of the surge of demand, but also because of the lack of ability to be able to ramp up the supply chain, including the, uh, the logistics, uh, in a way that we were all kind of accustomed to. And just kind of going back to Betsy's talk a little bit, um, let's imagine that logistics um, is permanently damaged in some way. Um, are, is that going to encourage you to, 
do more domestic manufacturing, or does that mean you just plan uh, your seeds in a little bit earlier to to inc uh, to handle the delays in logistics? Well, I, I don't think it'll be permanent, but I think uh, you know we we were already dealing with uh, disruption with the tariffs from uh, you know 2019, as I uh, as, as I jokingly say. I wish that was all we were dealing with now. As difficult as that seemed at the time, it. Uh, Nothing compared to what, what we're dealing with now, but uh, that that already uh, motivated companies like ours to move a lot of um, production out of China and diversify throughout Asia. I mean, as we discussed during the uh, the tariffs for a lot of industries, bringing jobs back to the U.S. just you can't do overnight. The uh, you know the infrastructure isn't in place. The, uh, uh, the 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 education and training just can't be done overnight. So. Uh, it will continue, I think, to be to be done across Asia, uh, but I don't think it'll be permanent. And I think actually one of the things we're finding is, as was talked about, work from home. This uh, the, the use of digital tools, even in, in in a creative industry like design and production, uh, should greatly reduce the lead time uh, that we were um, have been used to in an industry like shoes. It's 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 well over a 12 month uh, lead time. So. Uh, the the opportunity to use these digital 3D imagery and printing and uh, all these techniques that we are forced to have learned and and adopt over the last eight months, I think, will have very positive uh, 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 consequences to our supply chain going forward once we get out of this you know temporary uh, backlog. Are, are you basically saying that we were very just-in-time inventory oriented? Um, and now with logistics, we're just going to have to hold a larger inventory and be a few more days earlier. And, you know, are there substantial costs for that additional working capital, et cetera? No, I, 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 I think just at least, at least in fashion and shoes, at least in the, we weren't very well. We didn't do much on just-in-time as well as we could have or other industries did. In fact, we were so uh, – we, we, we worked so far in advance because we needed orders from our uh, retail partners that um, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of ability to compress the uh, – compress the lead time, especially as we go and, and sell more through our own channels and get that uh, instant feedback. I do think in 2021, towards the back half, you might see some buildup of inventories just because of uh, uh, reacting to what, we're what, what the industry is dealing with now. But I think, uh, you know, as, as we get past this, I think it'll be very positive for the uh, efficiency in turn and lead time of uh, inventory levels. Brendan, thank you. Um, our next speaker is David Costin. David is Chief Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs. David, go ahead. Uh, okay, I'd just like to say uh, it's a pleasure to follow Brendan. And while you like Merrill's, I would be a strong recommender of uh, Gold Cup Sperry's. Very comfortable, uh, particularly in the casual environment of, uh, of 2021. Okay, so I've been asked to address SPACs, which are special purpose acquisition companies. And for the roadmap for my allotted time, I want to talk about three topics. I'd like to explain as efficiently as possible what a SPAC is and how it works. Second, what are the factors that have led to this explosion in SPAC activity during the last six months, and particularly uh, the first couple of weeks of 2021? And then third, most importantly, what happens next? So to put the topic of uh, special purpose acquisition company or a SPAC in perspective. Today is January 24th. There have been 15 business days since the start of the year. We've had 56 initial public offerings of SPACs raising $16 billion in the first few weeks 
Put that in context, there were 57 SPACs in all of 2019. And basically, since the middle of last year, last six months, we've had 250 SPACs go public. So this is a topic that's on the front of everyone's mind in the investment community. And so let me address the first subject, what is a SPAC? Simply put, a SPAC is a blank check company that's formed with the intention of acquiring or merging with another company. The SPAC raises money through an IPO, and it needs to complete an acquisition for over two years. If they can't complete an acquisition over the two years, they have to return the money to shareholders. That is, at a core, what a SPAC is. And so the process of creating a SPAC and the whole uh, sort of life cycle of a SPAC has two parts. There's the IPO process of the SPAC, and then there's the merger, or actually making the investment in a company. And so the IPO process, the sponsor, creates a SPAC, invests some money by purchasing warrants, which is going to cover the cost of taking it public and the cost of finding a deal. That gives them some warrants. That's where the cash is. Then they go out and raise money in a traditional IPO process and take this company public. Again, it's a blank check, so there's really no assets in the company other than cash. The money that comes in gets put into a trust, and that's basically sort of locked away until the sponsor can go find this acquisition. And the core of why this is such a popular uh, activity for sponsors is that for all this work, the sponsor is basically getting a 20% stake in the company. So that is the, uh, that is the scrape or that is the, uh, that is the uh, incentive for the, uh, for the sponsor to, uh, to, to go forward. And the sponsor also has some warrants uh, that they have to go along with the, uh, the company that they purchased. And so the third part of it, of course, the proceeds, they said, are put into a trust. This is sort of three parts to create the SPAC, which then leads to the second topic, which is, all right, well, what is it that the sponsor is looking for in doing a, an acquisition? So basically, the, uh, the company is looking, the sponsor is looking to buy or identify a private business, which is basically by merging a public SPAC with a private business is sort of a reverse IPO process. Instead of the private company itself going public, it basically sells into the public SPAC. And what may happen is at the time the deal is negotiated, there may be a private investment in public equity, a pipe, which is a way to credentialize the whole transaction. Again, this is all happening privately. The public SPAC is you know, going around its business trying to find a, an interesting acquisition. And then if they find a deal and they bring in some institutional investors, major institutional investors, it sort of credentializes the deal when it's announced. And then when it's announced, the transaction is then put to a vote for the shareholders. Now remember, the SPAC is a blank check company. The acquisition that they're planning is not known at the time of the IPO. So the value of the value creation is basically dependent on the ability of the sponsor to identify a target and negotiate a purchase price. So in exchange for basically giving the money at $10 a share to the, uh, to the uh, sponsor and putting into trust, the investor has a put option. And basically, they have a right to vote. If they don't like the deal, or they think it's not a particularly attractive deal, they can say, I want my $10 back plus accrued interest and walk away and kind of move on. Or if they like the deal, they can kind of roll in and continue to own their uh, the investment in the SPAC, which then is going to own this individual company. 
So we take a vote, and if there's a uh, you know enough shares, which typically is the case, most of these get done. Uh, it then goes into uh, the, the public market. The seller of the company, if you will, the seller of the private business, or if you will, the merger uh, candidate, uh, can be the operator or could actually sell a majority interest, sort of depends on the individual structure. And if it's approved, this goes forward. And if for whatever reason the, uh, the proposal does not go through and gets rejected by shareholders, then at the end of the two year, the sponsor can go out and try to find another deal, but at the end of two years, they have to give the money back to the investors. So just as an observation in summary, you know, why would someone invest in a SPAC? Investing a SPAC offers upside potential with a downside protection, meaning that the upside potential is a function of the sponsor buying or negotiating a good deal and the stocks go up, or if they don't like it, uh, they can take the $10 back and, and kind of move on. And why would a private company look to sell to a SPAC? Well, there's a couple of features in the SPAC which are kind of unique. One is about forecast, and the other is about proceeds. And the idea in a normal IPO, the company prepares its financials, and they're all backward looking. And the investor has to make his or her own projections on what they think this thing is going to be worth. Well, in a SPAC, it kind of reverses that because the SPAC is public and they are buying a private business and the private business is able to publish its forecast, not say publish, it's able to disclose forecasts. And that is a, particularly helpful if you think about complicated business models, sports betting, cannabis, electric vehicles, things that are very difficult to model. They could say, look, this is our internal forecast and the SPAC owner, when he or she decides if they want to vote for the, the deal or not, they have that flexibility. And the other is the idea of capital raising. In an IPO, traditionally, maybe management issues 20 to 25% of the company. That's a certain amount of capital that can be raised. And the SPAC can be really unlimited amount of capital. There's the SPAC assets. Typical SPAC now is about $300 million. But these pipes that I mentioned, these private investment and public equities, can be several billion dollars. So that's sort of a summary of what a SPAC is, how it's created, why people on both sides might want to pursue this. So why has there been this explosion in SPACs in the last six months? And there's a couple of reasons. The first is the pandemic. And the pandemic created an existential issue for a lot of private businesses. They had solvency and they had liquidity issues. And they realized that being a public company actually offered some traditional, some attractive features in terms of accessing capital, equity capital and debt capital in the public markets. And so that, I believe, is one of the reasons why you've seen both capital being raised and private businesses looking to have more stable uh, financials. So that's sort of first issue. The second issue, like everything else in the investment market, the Federal Reserve, I think, has had a major impact on being a spark for the SPAC maybe unintended, but by pushing interest rates to zero. At the lower bound, basically interest rates are zero, you could invest in a SPAC, and basically you have your $10, you're getting the accrued interest. If you like the deal, you can continue in. If you don't like the deal, say, I want my $10 back with my accrued interest, and kind of walk away. It's no different from owning cash. So it's a cash substitute. Why not have a flyer on potential upside? So I think that is a particular important reason why the flurry of investment interest in SPACs. Another reason is that sponsors have shifted from value to growth. So historically, if you go back over the last 10 years, most SPACs 
we're focusing on energy companies or industrial companies, kind of value type investments. But this year, 70% or last year in the last six months, 70% of the deals are in tech, consumer discretionary, healthcare, biopharma, really growth oriented sectors, which is where investors are definitely interested. And therefore, there's a lot of interest in giving money or investing money with a, with, with a SPAC. Another issue is that retail trading has been increasing uh, investor appetite for these non-traditional early stage businesses. I mentioned earlier some of the uh, DraftKings, for example, sports betting or Fisker as a example of a electric car maker. And so investors are quite uh, enamored of these very, very uh, high growth businesses which don't have a lot of comparables. And so the third topic is, you know, what is happening next? What comes next in the world of SPACs? Uh, I think that it's likely in the intermediate future to slow. The idea of five SPACs a day going public is unsustainable. Uh, so you'll probably have fewer SPACs at some point. Still another, you know, for a while, those that are planning will continue to go forward. But I think that uh, torrid pace is likely to uh, slow at, uh, at some point. A second point is that interest rates are going to stay low. The Federal Reserve, in, uh, in my opinion, is likely to stay on hold for the, last, the next several years, plural, several years, interest rates around zero. So that is some supportive interest as an alternative of owning cash you can own a SPAC. The third, one of the headwinds, is that there's $80 billion of SPAC capital that has not yet been invested. So the, the SPACs have been issued, the capital has been raised, and these investors uh, the sponsors are looking to invest this money. Uh, and so the question is, you know, how many attractive deals are there out there for this amount of capital? Uh, typically, if you lever that up five times, that means $80 billion of equity. It's $400 billion of, of merger transactions. That's like 12% of the amount of uh, U.S. merger deals that are done over the last two years. You get a sense of the magnitude of dollars that, have, uh, that this, uh, this, this generates. Um, I would say the last point I would make is that I view this as the democratization of venture capital, because venture capital has tended to be a more clubby business. Some VC firms, sometimes in the West Coast and various other cities, sort of have a, a, a lock on investing in some of these early stage and high growth companies. And I think that by using the public markets to do that has been a way of accelerating that uh, VC process. And I think this is a, what I call it the democratization of venture capital. And finally, there's a high valuation in the public equity markets, and this is viewed as an alternative way of, uh, of moving into, uh, into the public markets for a lot of these private companies. So Larry, I'm going to stop, uh, and we can uh, have a conversation with uh, yourself and maybe other uh, speakers as well. Okay. Great job, David. Um, so You've mentioned a couple of ideas uh, related to market failure that creates the opportunity for SPACs. I wanted to drill down on some of those. Um, the first one is, for the past several years, we've heard that uh, the public markets uh, were not that great, that the private markets could pay more uh, for a small business than a public market could. There were frictions associated with being a public company. There was short-termism of earnings. Um, and that private firms, you know, often led by private equity firms, they could, uh, you know, encourage management to do the right things. We could uh, hide in the private market and make very difficult decisions that weren't available. And that we were really in the time of the death of the public markets. And here comes SPACs, and it's like the exact reverse. 
all the private companies are going to come out in this new form. Uh, the public markets are back. Retail investors are back. Um, even the venture capital business is under stress. What happened? Why? How did the public markets become the place to be and private markets the place to, to get out of? Uh, it's a great observation, Larry. So uh, to put some numbers around what you were uh, what you're referencing, in uh, you know, 25 years ago, there were 8,000 publicly listed U.S. corporations. And that dropped at around 4,100. So it basically got cut in half uh, by uh, you know, 10 years ago. But actually, business formations have actually been increasing uh, quite, uh, you know, quite, quite a lot in, uh, in the last couple of years. And the increase in, uh, Betsy uh, you know, may have more to offer that in some, from a labor market perspective, but the, there's now about 4,700 publicly traded companies. And one of the issues of a public company is that there is a uh, compensation currency that uh, employees can participate with, uh, with equity, you know, uh, stock options or stock-based compensation. So that's one way that companies uh, that may be looking to invest all their cash into growing their business may choose to be in the public forum uh, so they can you know, use their, their money to fund growth. So that's number one. Number two is interest rates are so incredibly low that all of this growth, the, the, the long or long duration uh, kind of cash flow to these fast-growing companies, uh, the market's paying you know, a big premium for that. And I guess that's the, from a market efficiency point of view, public markets are ascribing higher value perhaps than public than private investors uh, are willing to do so. That's kind of my way I would answer it. The other thing that's strange to me. Uh, this, is, this is Bill. Can I, can I jump in with a question here? Do it. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the, my question is, uh, we, the, is the innovation here, the, the flow of funds into the innovative sector, partly uh, accounted for by the forced saving that has been going on with COVID, and that forced saving dam is going to break? Uh, and, and how does this uh, affect the potentially rosy predictions for SPACs and other uh, new investment vehicles? Uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical uh, of basing things on last year's savings behavior. Uh, it, I think the interesting point you make that is uh, definitely observable, or I would ascribe it being observable, to retail uh, individuals sitting at home with, for a while, there was no sports. Uh, and I know on these calls in the past, uh, Larry's had different uh, you know, owners of different um, you know, sport, sporting teams. Uh, when those weren't actually taking place, the public markets was a alternative for people to uh, be investing in. And we certainly saw a big increase in the amount of retail uh, investing. Um, you know, I would come back to the idea of, of interest rates being so low as a uh, Kind of the the alternative group of investments is somewhat limited from a uh, from a fixed income uh, perspective, and I think that's shifted more capital up the uh, up the risk curve, if you will, to invest in public equities than the beneficiaries. I'm not sure people are necessarily uh, focusing on the uh, sort of what's happening in a pandemic and sort of consumer behavior, but rather uh, you look at electric vehicles. I think is a sort of prominent example where there's a whole bunch of different EV or electric vehicle companies, which are 
uh, going after what's perceived to be in the green economy uh, big uh, big growth the, the, the addressable market the total uh, addressable market viewed as very very large uh, lots of different companies pursuing this uh, and therefore in order to raise capital and to find ways to fund the, 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 those innovations they're all using not all but many of them are using SPACs to uh, to raise capital to, to achieve that David you mentioned a, um, a couple other sort of market failures um, a private company wants to go public um, you know generally they pay a six percent uh, IPO fee to their investment banks to go forward and here we're going to give 20 percent of the equity to a sponsor why why do these sponsors deserve this 20 percent why don't the um, why don't you see these private companies come forward and just offer themselves an IPO format and not pay the sponsor 20% for, I'll call this intermediate public markets uh, decision? Larry, I think it's an excellent point. I think it's uh, akin to the hedge fund business that was always two and 20%, and then it became one and a half and 15, or, you know, of course, there are some hedge funds that are charging five and, and 30, the different... Uh, you know, price points based on their track records. But the idea of pricing coming down would, would seem to me uh, you know, reasonably likely, number one. And then number two, Larry, addressing this issue, uh, I didn't go to all the different details, but some of the sponsors are taking their promote and putting it in an earnout, So they don't actually get the 20% up front. There's a hurdle and they'll get their, if you will, 20% or their, their, their return that they'll get from the, from the sponsor's perspective, is incumbent on the investor, uh, the external third-party investor, also doing well. So talk about sort of a congruence of interest between the sponsor and the third-party investors. I think your point's an excellent one, kind of trying to align those interests. And I think that's probably where you see uh, the business shift in terms of the structure of SPACs uh, go, going forward. You also mentioned a, a government failure, David, um, and this was uh, disclosure in public documents. So when I worked uh, at Solomon Brothers for the investment bank in the capital raising department uh, called Capital Markets, um, we were limited what we could say during the period of time that we were in the offering period. And you're right, we weren't allowed to make any sort of forecast or comments about what was going to happen in the future. And management was under very strict rules about what they could and could not say. And what you're saying is what's exciting about the SPACs is that they can get around the government requirements that limited this type of speech they could make. And it allows them to come forward and make forecasts, um, make, uh, I'll call it, aggressive statements about the potential for the future, and they can then use that as a sale. Is, if this is a government failure, is, is it... Um, is the lesson to be learned here that the SEC rules for disclosure and public offering need to be changed to allow for what's available in the SPAC market relative to what's available in the IPO market? Uh, I think it's a, a, a very interesting point. And just to clarify how this works, so there's a SPAC, which is a public entity. And so it files its, its, its financials. And, of course, the financials are it owns a bunch of cash in a trust. And they're going to then negotiate, they do negotiate a, a deal, a merger transaction with a private company. 
And so when they file their documents with the government, the SPAC itself is not offering projections. What they file is the private company's uh, documents or, or presentation on their own internal projections. Now, you could say is that the SPAC actually uh, you know, providing it projections? That's, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I won't necessarily adjudicate that issue. But no, what I was trying to say, are, David, was I, I, what I was trying to say where the, the government failure is, is that on the one hand, um, if the private company wanted to do a public deal, they would be not allowed to disclose their forecast. But because we do it in this other form, it is perfectly legal for the SPAC to disclose uh, forecasts in determination of whether or not the public should invest in this. Uh, it's not an IPO now. It's should you agree to exercise your put option or not. And I think if that's the governmental failure that's creating this opportunity, aren't, you know, as a society, we better serve by changing the methods of public disclosure in lieu of giving a 20% slice to a sponsor? So I guess I would think of it slightly differently, Larry, which is that it is maybe providing information that is uh, for the SPAC, as you said, shareholder deciding whether he or she wants to redeem the shares. It's almost, uh, I look at them as investor protection on the, uh, on the owner of the SPAC. It's basically, I gave the, I as the investor, gave the sponsor some money and, you know, this, this, is a, this is my safe harbor or my, my security that actually, if it's a bad deal, I have a, with this information that's now been disclosed, uh, I now can have a fully informed decision maybe not to pursue this. I guess I would look at it from that perspective. I think one of your most interesting points, David, relates to the type of businesses that are being put into these SPACs. So where before they were value firms, and now there are highly speculative firms um, going into new industries. And you view this as a democratization to allow individuals to participate very early in the creation of a company. Um, why do you suppose historically uh, the public markets have been unwilling to do such, uh, invest in such speculative activities and had limited it only to the word of venture capital? And why do you think now uh, the public has the, uh, the desire to own businesses uh, so early in the process with very little revenues and all growth? Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting point. I could sort of answer it on sort of several different uh, levels. In a lot of the tech companies, as you know, have been or were uh, going uh, A round and B round and C round, were basically delaying their uh, public offerings of an IPO uh, much longer than they might have historically. Uh, and there was a very robust and deep private uh, funding opportunity. And so I guess what's evolved is the, there's an interest on the part of investors to participate earlier. And if, uh, if some of the uh, private businesses are able to uh, keep getting funding in the private markets, you know, they could continue to do so. Um, and I guess raises the question is, is it better off you know, doing an IPO? So I guess there's three different choices. You could you know, try to do, take your company public as an IPO relatively early, get the capital to grow. The second option would be to go uh, and continue to tap the private, uh, I call it the, you know, the VC, venture capital market, to fund your growth. Uh, and then the third would be to merge into or create, you know, using the, the stack vehicle. And I guess there's sort of different, uh, you know, different companies will choose different 
different aspects and kind of a whole checklist of why they might choose one versus the other um, in terms of control, in terms of uh, you know, certain flexibility. I think the amount of capital that can be raised in the SPAC is one particular, uh, um, it's almost a credentialization. You do an IPO, you can raise a certain amount of capital, uh, but if you do a, go through a SPAC and you have this pipe, you can get huge credentialization, some of the largest uh, mutual funds, hedge funds in the country sort of credentializes mm -hmm. the deal and really gets them off to a, to a start. So I think that would be one of the ways uh, that would be sort of inclining some of these companies to want to grow through the use of a SPAC. And then there's a lot of interest in investors in a very low interest rate environment to participate in growth and kind of take a flyer on these companies. Got it. Okay. This is the part of the show, and I'm going to blindside some of my speakers, where we, uh, we, talk, we end with one uh, minute of optimism. Uh, very often in the What Happens Next episodes, we, we get too negative, too pessimistic with the, the, both the loss of life associated with COVID as well as the economic declines. So I'm going to go around uh, the room here and ask uh, each of the speakers to end on a note of optimism. Uh, David, given you just spoke, do you want to just comment what you're optimistic about? I'm optimistic that the cavalry is coming. My mom just got her COVID shot from uh, Pfizer-BioNTech. Um, I am optimistic that the in-person book club that was the spark and genesis <laughs> for these, this show is going to continue, and we're going to have an in-person club this year in 2021, and that would be my note of, uh, of, of, of optimism there. Uh, and I will just end because it's such an important, I've listened to these, I was a participant in the very first call that we did uh, you know, almost a year ago. Uh, Catherine March, Bateson yeah. was, an anth was, was an anthropologist. Uh, she herself, she's the daughter of Margaret Mead. She just passed away. And she had done a lot of research on how humans find new meaning as they live longer. And her dictum, which I think you are a living embodiment of, is we are not what we know but what we are willing to learn. And I think you represent that, and I compliment you on putting this show together uh, for the last year. It's been great. You're very sweet. Thank you. Uh, Brendan? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm grateful for David for uh, giving a shout-out to Sperry. So thank you for that, David. Much appreciated. Uh, I think my optimism, Larry, it, it really uh, reflects some of the things we talked about earlier. It's, it's, it's some of the uh, things that are accelerated uh, by this crisis, and, and I think will allow us to reimagine the way a company like ours uh, talks and, and, and interacts with the consumer, uh, specifically through our own e-commerce sites. And then, as uh, Betsy was talking about, uh, let us reimagine our workforce and uh, provide better work-life balance, hopefully, for our employees and also give us the opportunity to uh, be able to hire employees without as much restrictions on, uh, on geography. As I mentioned, we're based in western Michigan, and uh, as, as great a place as it is to be based, uh, there's talent throughout the country and really throughout the world that we'll be able to take better advantage of as we kind of hopefully get back to the office, but always have a blended uh, um, balance of uh, work from home. Great. Uh, Betsy Stevenson, if you're still with us, uh, what are you optimistic about? Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, given uh, this week we celebrated poetry, I'm going to start by telling you that um, my optimism uh, can, is sort of best expressed by a stanza from the poem uh, John Brown's Body, 
which is sometimes there comes a crack in time itself. Sometimes the earth is torn by something blind. Sometimes an image that has stood so long, it seems implanted as the polar star, is moved against an unfathomed force that suddenly will not have it anymore. And I feel that that expresses our attitude towards childcare, work-family balance issues. And I think we are, as Brendan just said, going to move into a new era where uh, we don't have uh, this idea of choosing between family and work, but we figure out how to integrate it in a way that allows us uh, to make both our work and our personal lives better. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Bill Fischel. I'm optimistic that there is a company called Worldwide uh, Wolverine Worldwide Shoes uh, that sells wide shoes because I need more wide shoes. Uh, my other optimism is that COVID has taught us to communicate, how to communicate uh, at a distance. And it's also taught us that we like to get together. And I think this new knowledge that we like to get together and we can also manage to get together on uh, 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 online uh, will improve uh, higher education and maybe even make it more accessible to people. So I'm, I'm, I think we'll come out of this stronger. Patrick? I'm optimistic because I just became a grandfather. My daughter had a baby on Christmas Day, and I'm optimistic also because the vaccine is now on the way. I'm confident that this year I'll be able to get a vaccination and that I'll be able to go to England and see the baby. So I'm feeling great about that. Thanks, Patrick. And Gary? All right. I guess I, I bring it all home. Uh, uh, and I am optimistic that uh, we, we have a new president. Uh, we have, I hope, a new tone in this country. Uh, I think there can be a world of good by putting this, the battles, the, the hatred behind us. Uh, I think in light of what Patrick is saying about George Orwell, I'm optimistic that there will be spaces in which every American can speak his or her mind in public with respect. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That ends uh, the program today. I wanted to give a quick plug for next week. Uh, we're going to have Steve Alloy back. Uh, he runs one of our largest home builders. Al Gertzman, who's been with us twice before, will talk about what's new in the ICU. He's an anesthesiologist. Alan Auerbach will talk about fiscal policy. He was one of my teachers at Penn. He's now at Berkeley. And Derek Lowe, who is, uh, runs one of the best vaccine blogs, will tell us which vaccine to take and what we should expect from the vaccines. All right, with that, that ends our program. I'd like to thank our speakers for their contributions. It was wonderful today. I'd also like to thank our listeners for their participation as well. That ends our program. Uh, you may disconnect. Thank you so much for your time. Bye-bye.